Father, uh, we thank you for giving us this time each week to gather together and to have this hour and a half of time to meditate deeply upon our Savior, to remind ourselves of who he is and what he's done for us and how worthy he is for us to surrender our whole lives for him and to live every moment for his glory. Uh, at least for myself throughout the week, it, it's easy to get wrapped up in ourselves and to start living for ourselves and to be concerned uh, thinking only of ourselves, Lord, but uh, we need to be thinking of you. We need to be uh, invested in you. We need to uh, be obsessed with, with you, and we thank you for this, this weekly recalibration of our minds and our hearts. And Lord, as we come to your word, we especially need your word uh, imprinted upon our hearts. We need your spirit to hide your word in our hearts, Lord, so help us to pay attention to what your word is saying. And I pray you'd help me in explaining it faithfully, accurately. Um, may you give your people discernment to see when maybe I'm not doing that uh, so that your truth is preserved in their hearts. Um, but Lord, uh, make me useful to you and of, a, of help to your people. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's turn back to Galatians. We're in chapter three again this morning, and we're looking at verses 15 through 18. Galatians 3, 15 through 18. Let me read that for us. Paul says, starting in verse 15, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant or will, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this, the law which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. How important is your earthly inheritance to you? To many people, it's, it's very important. To many, uh, what is left to them by their loved one as an inheritance often signifies to them what that loved one thought of them. And depending on what you received as an inheritance, uh, you might be left feeling like maybe the favored child or maybe the black sheep of the family. Well, no matter how important your earthly inheritance might be to you, it pales in significance to how important it was to the Israelites. For them, their earthly inheritance and their heavenly inheritance were not necessarily two different things. Listen to what God promised as an inheritance to Abraham and to his seed, that is, his offspring. Genesis 17, verses 6 through 8, God says this. He says, I will make you, Abraham, exceedingly fruitful. And I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. 
I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your seed after you. I will give to you and to your seed after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. That was the inheritance promised. Abraham and his seed were promised a place in God's kingdom forever. And to be cut off from that inheritance was to be under the judgment of God. As believers in Christ, we too have been promised a place in God's kingdom. Listen to what Peter writes in his first epistle, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. This is regarding our inheritance as believers in Christ. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. For us as believers, a glorious inheritance has been promised to us through faith in Christ. It's been promised, and it's ours by grace through faith. Think of how awful it would be for you to wake up one day and learn that conditions had been placed upon whether or not you get that inheritance. That before you can get that inheritance that you thought you had in the bag, as as it were, Now there are conditions that you must meet before you can get that inheritance. You must obey the work of the law. Think of how awful that would be. What you were certain of, now you're not, because you've suddenly learned there are things I need to do in order to get what I thought I had by grace. That would be an awful thing, because we would realize because of our sinfulness, we can't earn that. We would be without hope. But that is basically what the Judaizers have been doing to the Galatians. Remember, Paul had come to the churches in Galatia, and he had been preaching the good news to them that Jesus died for sinners and that he rose from the dead so that if they would turn from sin and trust in him, by the grace of God, they would be given freely the gift of eternal life. But after Paul left, the Judaizers came in behind him and were saying, Yes, you need to believe in Jesus, but hold on a minute. Before you can get that eternal inheritance that Paul was talking about, first you need to get circumcised, then you need to obey the law of Moses, and if you do good at that, then you'll get what was promised. Think of how, how much upheaval that injected into the Galatian churches. In our passage this morning, Paul is going to show us that by teaching what they were teaching, the Judaizers were not only robbing the Galatians of their, internal, or their eternal inheritance, but they were also robbing Abraham, and they were robbing Christ of their inheritance as well. The Judaizers were basically calling God a liar, someone who cannot be trusted to keep the promises that he has made. And the Judaizers were not the last of their kind. There are many today who sneak in and try to get between us and the inheritance God has promised us by telling us we need to do in order to get. 
the Judaizers and false teachers like them today, by doing that, they unwittingly are robbing Christ and they are blaspheming God. And that's what Paul is going to show us in this passage today. Paul begins by giving us an illustration. And his illustration is an everyday thing that we're familiar with. That is a last will and testament. And with a last will and testament, you have a testator, the one who makes the the will. And you have the beneficiaries, the ones who receive what the testator is promising to them. And that, that agreement, that document, that promise in and of itself is an irrevocable one. It's an unchangeable one. It's something that once promised is guaranteed to the beneficiary. That's the illustration that that Paul gives us. Look at verse 15. He says, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. So he's drawing from everyday human life. Even though it is only a man's covenant or will, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Paul here references human covenants or wills. And the Greek word that is translated in my Bible as covenant is the word diatheke. And in the ancient secular world, this word, diatheke, it was often used as a term for someone's last will and testament. And that seems to be what Paul's referring to here as an illustration. And again, that's something we're all familiar with. The contents of a will are determined by who? By the testator, right? The one who's leaving an inheritance to someone. He decides who's going to get what of what he has. He's leaving an inheritance, and he's deciding what that inheritance will be, and he's promising it to the ones to whom he's making that promise. The ones who are documented in the will as the recipients of that inheritance are called what? Beneficiaries, right? They are the beneficiaries of that will. So the testator, he makes the will, he makes the testament, right? And the beneficiaries receive what is promised to them in that will. And once the testator dies, that will is put in effect. It is ratified. It is made valid. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 9, where we see this same illustration used by the preacher who's writing to a Jewish congregation. Hebrews chapter 9, and he uses it to help us better understand the new covenant, where Jesus, as God, is actually the testator who dies for us to give us what he's promised. Hebrews 9 Starting in verse 15, it says, For this reason he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, in other words, in order for the sins that were committed under the old covenant to be forgiven, Jesus had to die to bring in the new covenant before anybody could be forgiven. He goes on, those who have been called, so he dies, so that those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal what? What does it say? What's the last word? Inheritance, right? Verse 16, for where a covenant, it's that word diatheke, last will and testament, for where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. 
For a covenant, a diatheke, is valid only when men are what? Dead. For it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Now, obviously, there's a difference here in Galatians 3. Paul's talking about the Abrahamic covenant. That's what he's going to bring into the conversation. And we know that when God made that covenant with Abraham, he didn't die in order to ratify it. That might be why Paul doesn't make mention of death being the act that ratifies the covenant. That's not the point of comparison he's making here. But he's saying that once a will is ratified, nobody goes back and monkeys with it, right? When the testator dies, that will is set in stone. Nobody can go back later and change what the testator decided regarding his inheritance. It is irrevocable, unchangeable. So nobody can go to the beneficiary and say, hold on, son of Mr. Jones, before you can get what Mr. Jones promised you, you need to do A, B, and C. Once you do those things, then you can get what Mr. Jones promised you. No, nobody can do that because you get what was stipulated in the will simply because the testator promised it to you, right? Nobody can come in and add conditions to what was promised. Nobody can keep you from getting your inheritance by placing a bunch of hoops between you and that inheritance that you need to jump through in order to get it. Now, can you see where Paul's going with this illustration? He's, he's implicitly referring to who? Who's placing hoops in front of the Galatians to jump through? Who's adding conditions to the promises that God has made? The Judaizers, right? That's where he's going with this. Paul had told the Galatians that they receive God's promises by faith alone, but the Judaizers are coming and saying, hold on, I know what the testator said, but actually you need to do A, B, and C before you can get what the testator promised. The Judaizers were like someone who was trying to monkey with the last will and testament of the testator. Now in verse 16 of Galatians 3, Paul begins applying this illustration of a human last will and testament to what we see in God's covenant with Abraham. And the comparison is this. God is like a testator in a will. He's making promises to certain people, to certain beneficiaries. He's promising an inheritance to them, just like a testator does in a will. Now, according to verse 16, who are the beneficiaries of the Abrahamic covenant? Let me read it for us. He says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. Who are the beneficiaries in the Abrahamic covenant? Any ideas? There's two of them. What's one of them? Yep, Abraham and? Yes, Abraham and Christ. That's, that's how Paul clarifies it. He first says to Abraham and to his seed, but then he clarifies. He does not say and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. Seed here doesn't mean what you plant in the ground. It, it's a referral to offspring. It's the Greek word sperma. It's referring to physical 
offspring. In God's covenant, God is the testator, and he has made promises to the beneficiaries of that covenant. He's made promises to Abraham and to Abraham's seed, who is Christ. Now, we're just going to jump off of that, but if you grabbed the notes today, you'll notice that I stapled to those notes a more in-depth explanation of, of where Paul sees Christ in the promises that God made to Abraham. Don't look at that now. It'll just distract you. But when you go home and you want to dig into it, like how did Paul see this in the Old Testament? Read through that. But Paul's not going in depth on it here, so I'm not going to either because that's not his main point. But what promise is Paul talking about? He says in verse 16, promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. What promises is he talking about here? Well, in the context of this chapter, we've already encountered one specific promise. Look up in verse 8. Verse 8 says, The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. All the nations will be blessed in you. That's that's the promise that God made to Abraham, that in him all the nations would experience salvation. They would experience the same justification that Abraham experienced by faith. It's the blessing of eternal life, a place in the kingdom of God. Now, how... Now, that, we can see that that's God's promise to Abraham, but where is Christ in the promise here? Well, let's go back to Genesis. Genesis. Uh, look at chapter 12 of Genesis. This is where we first see this promise made to Abraham. Genesis 12. And we've been here before. And look at what God promises Abraham in verse 3 of Genesis 12. He says, And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's God's promise to Abraham. Now go over to Genesis 22. This is uh, when Abraham was about to sacrifice his son Isaac to the Lord. That's something God commanded him to do. And Abraham was going to carry that out. But right before he, he slew his son, the Lord stopped him, said, Don't kill your son. Now I know that you fear me. Look at verse 18. It says, this is the Lord speaking to Abraham, In your seed... All the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. So the, the original promise in chapter 12 was, Abraham, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, who's the referent now? In who will the nations be blessed in verse 18? Well, what does it literally say? Yes, your seed, your seed, Abraham, your offspring, and your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But let's back up a little bit. Let's get a running start into this verse. Go back to verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. 
and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of whose enemies? What do your translations have there? Some have their enemies, some have his enemies. And actually the Hebrew pronoun there is singular. It should read his enemies. Your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And then verse 18 describes this blessing made to this singular seed. In your seed, the seed who will possess the gate of his enemies, in that seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So you see, the promises were made to Abraham and to his seed, and we see there a very particular seed, and, and there are messianic implications there. This is Christ. This is the seed. Remember the original promise God made uh, when he was cursing the serpent? He said that who would crush the serpent's head? The, the seed of the woman, right? And here's this same seed, God promising that this seed will possess the gate of his enemies. It's this seed, in this seed, that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, how is it that we are blessed in this seed, in Christ? How do we get blessed by being in him? Well, we saw this, if, if you're back in Galatians 3, look at verse 13, just to re refresh our memories. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus, the what of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. The blessing, right? Notice the blessing comes in Christ Jesus. Remember the promise, in your seed all the nations will be blessed. In Christ, the blessing of Abraham comes to the nations, to the Gentiles. And it comes because he became a curse for us. He brought us out from under the curse through faith in him so that the blessing could come upon us instead. God has promised Abraham and he's promised his seed, Christ, that in them all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now that brings us to the conclusion in verses 17 through 18. Paul has made an argument in verses 15 to 16, and now he's drawing a conclusion from that. And the conclusion is that this inheritance that he promised to Abraham and Christ is an uncompromised inheritance. It's inheritance that can't be monkeyed with. Uh, his argument, remember, in verses 15 to 16 was this. Even when it comes to the last will and testament of men, once that's ratified... Nobody goes back and monkeys with it by setting it aside or adding conditions to it. Remember, God is like a testator. He's made promises to certain beneficiaries, to Abraham and to Christ. Now in verse 17, Paul clarifies what he's driving at. Look at verse 17. Paul says, what I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant, a diatheke, previously ratified by God 
so as to nullify the promise. Paul is making an argument from the the lesser to the greater. Human beings are fickle, they are unjust, and they are devious. Yet even they will not mess with a will once it's been ratified. Now, why would we think that God, who is unchanging, who is perfectly just, and who cannot lie, why would we think that he, after making covenant promises to Abraham and to Christ, would, 430 years later, add conditions to it? If not even men can be faithful enough to not monkey with a will, why would we think God would monkey with his own promises? That doesn't make any sense. When God instituted the law of Moses, which came 430 years after he made that original promise to Abraham and to his seed, he was not setting aside his covenant with Abraham. He was not adding conditions to it. The coming of the law did not get in the way of his promises being fulfilled in the least. And these Judaizers, by saying that the Galatians need to obey the law in order to get that inheritance, show that they don't understand what the law was for. Remember, they're saying you need to get circumcised, you need to do the law of Moses before you can get blessed in Christ, before you can get blessed in Abraham. They're adding conditions to a promise that had no conditions to it when it was originally made. They don't understand the purpose of the law. The law was not given so that the promise could be fulfilled. The the Judaizers are arguing that that is what the law was for. That's not what it was for. And we're going to find out later what the law was for. But that's not what it was for. In verse 18, Paul explains the logic of his conclusion. He says, For if the inheritance is based on law... It is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Paul here is contrasting, on the one hand, receiving the inheritance by promise with, on the other hand, receiving the inheritance by law. It's one or the other. You can't get it both ways. The inheritance comes either by promise or by law, but not by a combination of both. When we're talking about receiving justification, promise and law are mutually exclusive. Now remember the context. Whose inheritance are we talking about here? It says the inheritance, if the inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on the promise. Whose inheritance is this? Remember verse 16? Who are the beneficiaries? Yeah, Abraham and Christ. And what has been promised to them? Remember, that in them all the nations will be blessed, right? We saw that in Genesis 12. We saw it in Genesis 22. That is the inheritance that has been promised to Abraham and Christ, that all the nations will be blessed in them. Now, if the inheritance comes to Abraham and comes to Christ by law, then it's not by promise any longer. If the inheritance came by law, that would mean it was not promised anymore. Let me just give an illustration in case this is getting hard to understand. Let's say on Christmas Eve, I promised my kids that they would get presents the next day, right? 
But then on Christmas Day, when they wake up and they're all fired up to open presents, I say, hold on a minute. Before you can open those presents, you need to make me a really good breakfast. And if I'm satisfied with the breakfast you made me, then I'll give you the presents. Well, on Christmas Eve, they were assured that they were going to get presents because I had promised it. I hadn't put any conditions on it. I just said, this is what's going to happen. They knew they were going to get presents. But then on Christmas Day, once I added conditions to that promise, are they assured anymore that they're going to get what I promised? No, they're not. Because it's a question as to whether or not they're going to be able to cook a breakfast that satisfies me. Right? They're not certain anymore. The promise is not a promise anymore. Because at first it depended on my word on Christmas Eve, but now it depends on their ability to do the law I laid down, which was make me a good breakfast. You see, adding conditions destroyed the promise that I made. That's that's the argument Paul is making. If the law of Moses is a condition being added to the promise, then the promise is destroyed. It's not a promise anymore. For God to to promise Abraham and Christ that all nations would be blessed in them, but then to add conditions 430 years later, that would be like God saying this. Picture God talking to Abraham and to Christ. He says, Abraham, my friend, Jesus, my son, I know I promised you that all the nations would be blessed in you, but actually they will only be blessed in you if they obey all the commands I gave to Moses. Let me say that again. If God says, Abraham, my friend, Jesus, my son, I know I promised you that all the nations would be blessed in you, but actually they're only going to be blessed in you if they obey the law of Moses. He's just destroyed the promise that he made to them. God I'm continuing to to say this many different ways so that it clicks, because it's not, at first, easy to understand. Let me just keep rolling it around. God promised Abraham and Christ that all nations would be blessed in them. But if the nations can only be blessed by obeying the law, will that promise ever come true? If the nations are prom- if, if God's promising Abraham that the nations will be blessed in him, if the only way that can happen is if they obey the law, is anybody going to get blessed in Christ or in Abraham? No. Why not? Look at verse 10 that we already went over. Verse 10 says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a what? A curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. If the only way to be blessed in Abraham and to be blessed in Christ is by obeying the law, how many people are actually going to get blessed in Abraham and in Christ? None. None at all. In that case, would Abraham and Christ receive what was promised to them? No, they would not, because there's nobody blessed. They're all cursed. Nobody gets blessed in them if it's by law. They, as the beneficiaries, would not get the inheritance that God had promised to them. Nobody would ever be blessed in them, let alone all nations, if it's by law, because all the nations would remain under a curse, not under a blessing. Does that, do you get what I'm saying? All right. If not, talk to me afterward, and I'll, 
I'll try to rehash it. But when someone like the Judaizers come along to you and they say that your salvation, your access to blessing in Christ depends in some measure on your ability to obey God, what are they doing? They are robbing you of your salvation, yes, by tricking you to, to rely on your works instead of on Jesus. That's bad enough. But there's more that they are doing. They are actually robbing Abraham and they are robbing Christ of their promised inheritance. And they are calling God a liar. How so? Well, by getting you to rely on your own law-keeping rather than on Christ, on what he has done to save sinners, they're keeping you from being someone who's blessed in Christ. They're keeping you cursed. Because if you're trying to get to God through law, you're cursed. You can't make it because you're a sinner. They are robbing Christ of a portion of his inheritance. And in addition to that, they're calling God a liar. God promised Abraham and Christ that all nations would be blessed in God or in, in Abraham and Christ. For someone to say to you that you need to obey in order to get that blessing is to say that God went back on his promise to Abraham and to Christ by adding conditions later. Now, the Judaizers were not the last of their kind. I think we all know that. There are many false religions out there that try to blend justification by faith with justification by works. They try to blend promise and law together. They try to say that Christ's inheritance of having many nations blessed in him will come by law rather than promise. When a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, don't listen when they try to get you to adopt their law-keeping religion. When a Mormon stops you on the street and says, I'm a Christian too, don't believe it because they're relying on works to try to get to God. They're cursed and they don't even know it. Don't let yourself get cursed along with them by abandoning Christ. When a Roman Catholic invites you to celebrate the Eucharist with him, don't let that wafer touch your lips. The Roman Catholic religion adds works to what is a gift of grace. They are, all of them, robbing Abraham, and they're robbing Christ of his inheritance. They're calling God a liar, that what he promised might not actually happen because you got to do something to get the promise. So don't join their ranks. Abandon all efforts to try to earn God's favor. If you want to be eternally blessed, then trust in Jesus alone and in the work that he has done for you by the righteous life he lived, the atoning death that he died, and the glorious resurrection that he accomplished. He bore the curse of the law for sinners so that you'll be blessed in him if you trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you're not a liar. You made promises to Abraham and to Christ. You promised an inheritance to them. And you are the God who is the truth. You cannot lie. Abraham and Christ will get exactly what you promised them. And when you brought the law 430 years later, that was not you adding conditions to that promise. It's not like you changed justification by faith into justification by works. No, it's always been 
justification by faith, not by works. The adding of the law was not a changing of the way in which you saved people. So Lord, help us to never start relying on our works in order to get the blessing that you have promised. Help us to always draw near to you through faith in Jesus alone. He did the work that we could not do, that we would not do, and he did it so that we could be blessed through faith in him. Help us, Lord, to stand firmly upon what our Lord and Savior Jesus has done for us. It is his work that you have accepted, and it's on his behalf that you declare us righteous when we trust in him to be our Savior and our Lord. We thank you for him, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.